Welcome to the 10th episode of Delica. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sweden. And this week we're going to talk about the findings of the International People's Tribunal, which judges Indonesia guilty of genocide in 1965. And we're going to talk a little bit about what the 1965 massacre was, and then go into detail about what the report found. Not just mass killings, but also sexual violence. We're also going to talk a little bit about what the IPT is, and just in general, we want to take this as an opportunity to talk about the historical aspects of 1965 as well, and talk about how Indonesia still needs to grapple with its violent past. This is not an easy topic to talk about, and many people still avoid it. But I think we think it's worthy to discuss. So, here's to it. I guess the first thing we should talk about is what exactly the IPT is, and what exactly it was prosecuting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the IPT is the International People's Tribunal, which is basically, in this case, is actually a foundation created in order to talk about and judge the 1965 massacre. So I'm quoting from the website that. Uh, the authority of an IPT lies in its moral foundation and the conviction that the law is an instrument of civil society, not owned by the state. And the foundation only became a legal entity in 2014. What did they actually find, Sway? What's great is that there's many resources in which you can read the full text of the results, and I encourage everyone who's listening to read the full text because it's great. What it essentially said was that the judges appointed by the foundation. Was going to try its case as nine counts of crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. What these counts are: murder, enslavement, imprisonment, torture, sexual violence, persecution, enforced disappearance, hate propaganda, and complicity of other states. Mm-hmm. So basically, whether or not the Indonesian state did all of these acts as mm-hmm. crimes against humanity, mm-hmm. or if individuals in the country representing the state did all of this as well. And the result is, the state、guilty. is completely responsible and guilty of crimes against humanity and genocide on all counts. So I think we should also probably talk a little bit about what actually happened in 1965 versus, you know, the propaganda that the Indonesian government still upholds in our history textbooks.、Uh, it's hard to condense in. Less than five minutes, but and honestly, you should probably read up on this after you've listened to us try to condense. But we will try. So basically, in the Indonesian propaganda, in 1965, President Sukarno, our founding father, was still president, and he was set to be deposed by the Indonesian Communist Party, who wanted to seize power and make Indonesia a communist state,、mm-hmm. much like Vietnam next door, much like Cambodia as well, and China. So what set it all off was the abduction and murder, supposedly by the Indonesian Communist Party of leading Indonesian military generals, and in order to protect President Sukarno from all this, President Suharto、um, abducted President Sukarno and started securing his grip on political power and the military and police apparatus of Indonesia. And he started, you know, printing all these propaganda that the communists were trying to seize. Power and that they must be exterminated at all costs in order to secure Indonesia itself.、Mm-hmm. So from September to the following year, a series of 
orchestrated massacres occurred throughout Indonesia. Yeah. And so like when we pictured what happened, it wasn't like overnight there was like a lot of people dying. It was executed by the Indonesian military to instigate chaos in different parts of Indonesia yeah. to cause um, neighbors to turn back on their neighbors and kill each other. Things spiral out of control, right? So, Because part of it is, even though it's a carefully constructed military plan, the way they implemented it is um, half military, half propaganda, right? Yeah. They actually empowered individuals and what they call death squads. If you mm-hmm. watch Joshua Oppenheimer's films, essentially your neighbors... To drag and, out, kill you, yeah, rape to, you. For the purpose of so-called protecting the state mm-hmm. and eliminating communists. And it's essentially allowing people to act with impunity. If you think back to that time, it was to the extent that all the rivers were red with blood, right? Yeah. Generations were lost. Generations were lost. So I guess usually when we talk about 1965, we generally talk about the genocide and mass killings. But a large part of what happened as well is there are a lot of other crimes associated with, in general, against suspected communists, right? Mm -hmm. And one of which, in particular, against female suspected communists and women in general is the sexual violence that occurred during that time. Yeah, so the report actually points to a report made by Komnas Prempon or the National Commission Against Violence Against Women. Mm-hmm. And it's talking about listening to the voices of women survivors of 1965 and it accounts for a specific female political detainees testimonies about mm-hmm. what happened when they were detained by the security forces of Indonesia yeah. and they collected 122 female political prisoners and of this 122 people 74 reported that they were raped and it's actually really hard if, to read the report if you you should I, I really like we reference a lot of things but definitely this is one of the reports you should have a chance to look at it's only yeah. 10 pages and it really goes into detail about the horrors these women faced. They interviewed people, right? It's yeah. not just like statistical data or analysis. It is yeah. talking to the victims yeah. and getting their first-hand accounts. Yeah, and for example, a lot of these women were repeatedly raped and basically became sex slaves for uh, the military and security forces. So they were and detained the probably, yeah. indefinitely without due process so they were not charged with any particular crime they were just imprisoned and used as sexual objects by the people of the state right like the military apparatus so just by virtue their affiliation. affiliation so the thing is um the reason why in indonesian women political detainees were part of these incarcerations was there's this political organization, women's organization called Gerwani, or Gerakan Wanita Indonesia, who was affiliated with the Indonesian Communist Party. But what they actually really did was a lot of literacy programs. Um, they wanted agrarian reform and just generally a women's organization for women by women. And this was a really popular organization. There was 1.3 million women who were a part of Gerwani. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, it started 
before before the Communist Party as well, before, and had yeah. affiliations with like Sukarno and the independence movement. Yeah, the roots came mm-hmm. from there. So a lot of leaders of this movement was also really big in the independence movements, like Eskatri Murti, who oh. we talked about in the previous podcast. Yeah. But anyway, so the propaganda that Suharto set out said, you know, Gowani castrated the generals yeah. and gouged out their eyes. But, you know, they eventually had autopsies and it was just like clean headshot wound. Yeah, it's either bullets or bayonets, but nothing as nothing. torturous as the propaganda claimed it to be. Yeah, so this set off and kind of created this idea that communist women were immoral and amoral and, deviants. And, yeah, and murderous and... Had to be exterminated, basically. Which was, I think, such an unnecessary turn of events, right? Yeah. Almost like why was these women's group, you know, pointed out and perpetrated, like it's like included in all of this, right? It, it, it almost like it's a throwaway detail that doesn't really make sense, at least to me. Yeah, I mean, it's again this culture of scapegoating, right? Like mm-hmm. who who else can we implicate and purge? Yeah, essentially. I guess, like, how to... I guess if you want to implicate the Indonesian communist movement in general, and you want to, like, root Indonesia of all communists, you can't do that just by killing males. You also need to kill women. So it's, like, eradicating an entire generation effectively, right? I also think part of it is that the military recognized that there are organizations outside of the military that Mm -hmm. might be against what they just did. Yeah. And certainly, Gurwani was a strong movement. It Mm -hmm. had... It had leftist leanings, Mm -hmm. for sure. Easy target. It's an easy target. And it's it's crazy because, um, you know, of those who survived, they have horrific tales that the Communist Report report detailed. And it's, I mean, it's it's hard to read, but it's worth reading. Yeah, I guess a lot of the times we picture the victims of these purges as like all male, you know, guys being killed in ditches. But a lot of the victims are actually women as well. Yeah. And besides these women, because um, a lot of the times, like, why people join Garwanis, it was very simple because there's a lot of, like, sort of soft funds for it. So basically, if you sign up for a Garwani membership, you get a bag of rice for your to feed your family, right? Mm-hmm. And this was not an easy time, right? So you could have just signed up for a small perk, right? And in the end, this could definitely backfire and spiral into... You know, get, becoming a political prisoner for unknown reasons. But even if you weren't in this political organization, the other crime against women in 1965 was if you were the wife of a political detainee, so yeah. just a male political detainee, and you visited your husband, a lot of the times, a lot of the wives would be raped by the military or police or had or were raped as a precondition to seeing their husbands or bartered sex for the release of their husbands. Mm-hmm. At this point, Indonesia was already a state. There were supposedly law and order. This is no longer like the late 1940s, where we're still becoming a state. Like, And again, when you think about the sexual violence, right? Like, how does this help protect the country? It doesn't. It when just, you imprison these women, basically, through sexual slavery and the things they have to do, how does this save Indonesia from the so-called threat of communism, right? Yeah, I th- I think it's sort of just... Cynically, to me, it's just a way to keep the military happy in order to perpetuate Suharto's rule and grip onto Indonesia. Certainly, in some of the more paramilitary or mm-hmm. like the death squads, the unofficial organizations that mm-hmm. 
has risen up in order to perpetrate these acts, mm-hmm. I think that's a very valid argument. Mm-hmm. You keep them happy by giving them this, like, you know, turning a blind eye towards what they're doing in, yeah. in terms of this. And that way they'll continue doing what you, you told them to do. It seems, it's sort of like a twisted reward, right? Yeah. And it's just, it's another, you know, like, trope of, like, women being objects for mm-hmm. men. And I guess regardless of time, this has always been an issue for women, right? Yeah. Like, even today. But especially in times of war and uncertainties, women are one of the most vulnerable groups of people that there is. When law and order goes out the window. Yeah. With this particular report as well, I think it's one of the few reports that, other than maybe the Komnas Prompon report, mm-hmm specifically talks about yeah. the rampant sexual violence that mm-hmm. occurred during this time and not as something that's a throwaway a throw or like a casualty yeah. or a collateral damage basically right yeah. this is part of the program mm-hmm. and that's terrifying right and this is a program that for the victims that have survived mm-hmm. they still have that stigma mm-hmm. of being either part of Garwani or you know a uh, wife of a political detainee and they still don't get the rights, the full rights that they deserve yeah, I mean, today. After 1965, if you had a family who was supposedly communist, you had to have a katepe or identity card that had a special designation that you were part of. You had a history of communist activity in your family. And if you had that on your identity card, it's basically like you can't have jobs. You can't have, you can't have jobs in the government. You can't have jobs in a lot of businesses. That's the first time I've heard... That's like the Nazi regime. Uh, when you yeah. would label people with the patches. Yeah. That's insane. That is true, though. Wow. Little known facts. But that's significant crazy. facts. So the discrimination and the abuse continued... Yeah, yeah. It's from, like, from the explicit yeah. discrimination to implicit. Yeah. For a long time as well, if you were Chinese-Indonesian... Your identity card had the number nine in the beginning of it, right? Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So there were special numbers that designated you are of Chinese Indonesian descent. The only thing I knew was that you had to change your name. (laughs) Oh, that too. Yeah. Yeah, but lots of... It's systemic then. It's no longer about like one evil this guy. Is why, this, is, this is why the state, the country of Indonesia is being tried, right? Yeah. Because it became an institutional act of continued discrimination and abuse. violence and crimes against humanity right that's yeah i mean i guess that's part of it it's like it's not about trying one bad guy it's yeah. about there's a systemic issue a systemic cause for this kind of abuse and discrimination mm-hmm. and that's ultimately responsible of the government the idea was that during the new order things were stable right what's the price of stability dead people dead people that was really dark. Uh, this entire topic is really dark. So basically, wanting to clarify what the IPT is and what IPT is not, the IPT should stand in contrast to the ICJ and ICC. Um, The ICJ is the International Court of Justice, which is an officially UN-founded entity created in 1946. It actually tries boundary disputes, maritime disputes, trade disputes between um, UN countries. Mm -hmm. So they recently tried South China Sea 
um, right, court the, between the, the Philippines, Philippines and, and China. China. This yeah. is the realm of the ICJ. Yeah. Whereas the ICC is the one um, created in 2002 in order to try criminal prosecution of individuals around crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide. The ICC is the International Criminal Court. And they're also currently investigating situations in Georgia, Mali, Cote d'Ivoire, Libya, Kenya, and a lot of those kind of cases. The mm-hmm. ICC has you know, the international clout and ability to punish individuals. Yep. And the reason why, for example, why uh, we won't ever see 1965 come to these courts is because the ICJ is a boundary nation-states issue. So you're talking about more international more, conflicts in that yeah, sense yeah like between right. countries between countries yeah whereas the ICC only tries cases from 2002 onwards mm-hmm. so basically an IPT differs from international court the IPT is a foundation created in 2014 in order to specifically try the 1965 Indonesian case its full name is really IPT, International People's Tribunal 1965. So it's of a particular case founded by activists and exiles and academics mm-hmm. and not having any particular... Cloud? Uh, Jurisdiction? Well, umbrella Authority? organization. It's, it's not part of the UN. It's not part of any government. It's not mm-hmm. part of any international body yeah. either. It's a people's court. And they're openly acknowledge that, you know. They recognize that that's what they are, and they're not trying to say, like, we have any legal obligation or legal, or legal power. Authority, yeah. It does make you wonder, like, how much power do they actually have if it's just mm. about, as they call, moral authority. Zero. Stephanie thinks it's zero. I think it's a little bit more than that. So what do you think is the value of all this? My personal opinion um, is that even though this body has no legal authority, mm-hmm. it does create an awareness a lot of foreign news media outlets as well as local news media outlets mm-hmm. have latched onto this and mm-hmm. brought back the whole case of 1965 into the public limelight. And it also gives a platform for a lot of the citizens and activists and exiles and dissidents mm-hmm. to say, we've got an actual report, a 600-page report in which mm-hmm. we can delineate the legal justifications for why this is a crime yeah. and why we need to have we need to address it. Yeah. And I think it might be on a personal level for if- victims or family of victims kind of validating yeah. their pain and suffering, right? Because it's Having that acknowledged yeah. as a actual crime against humanity by some kind of court-like body. International court-like body. Yeah. Which is actually filled, if you look at the judges, by a roster of very qualified, talented, and well-credentialed peoples. Well, I do think it's interesting. I don't know if it's intentional or not that mm-hmm. they include judges. I mean, that they, they invited these are these are all judges that are invited, right? Mm-hmm. They're they invited judges that have nothing to do with Indonesia, yeah, or the region, arguably, other than maybe Cambodia. But like, you know, it's like yeah. they're not necessarily experts in Indonesia or in the 1965 genocide. Is that good or bad, though? That's that's part of the question. Um, for I personally me, feel like I wanted more. Stephanie's very skeptical about this, but I think it's still it's not saying they're unqualified. Not saying they're not qualified. I just I think part of my hesitation about all this is coming from someone whose family was significantly affected by 1965. So, like coming into this as someone who whose family suffered losses mm-hmm. unjustifiably from being you know when this purge went wild, it's just like if you're a Chinese Indonesian, there's a lot more target on your back at yeah. this time. Like, a lot of the people who were killed is, is because, you know, they're 
communists at the time and my family were relatively well off and it was just like easy targeting right it's also because some of you know they're also very quickly tied to communists. being communist because you're chinese. chinese yeah so sometimes even if you have no ties to the communist party it's because you're chinese yeah you're a target so yeah so basically as someone who was personally affected by this i just feel i don't know like strange about this whole thing like having foreigners judge like i understand like the sanctimony of all of this but i am also like i think first and foremost my priority is like i actually want reckoning from inside indonesia you know like and most recently there was the first like public acknowledgement held by the indonesian government there was a symposium there was a symposium talking about this issue and like bringing this up right Mm -hmm. and it was done internally in indonesia and i think that was a huge step and i just don't want anything to be like counterintuitive to that progress that's being made and continually being made the reason for that is as someone who is familiar with how the indonesian government reacts to foreign intervention the indonesian government usually sees any kind of foreign especially Western influence as something... Or even opinion. Or even opinion as something that's going to harden their hearts and like kind of be counterintuitive to any kind of progress. And if anything, like if you look into the politician statements into these issues, they've, they've all denounced this and like saying, this is for intervention and this is, we're not going to apologize. And if anything, it's like might cause some backtrack towards progress. Incremental progress is still progress. I think things... I, I don't know if this is suddenly me being optimistic, but I think <laughs> significant change could be underway within the next decade. Well, there needs to be an appetite for it. Mm-hmm. The political will to make this happen, right? If we don't have the political will. Also, cynically, it could be like, helps delegitimize previous administrations. True. Me being cynical again. Yes, definitely, you know, returning to form. <laughs> Our country is a young country and we need to learn from our mistakes. And we shouldn't be a xenophobic state because look at what's happening in other parts of the world right now. Do you really want to be like that? Uh, Please don't. Thank you guys so much for listening. And credits as usual to Brooke Murphy, Jazzart, and Ryan Little. Please visit our website at dialogica.id for resources and links as well as our previous episodes. Yeah, there have been some pretty good ones i think so give us a listen and follow us and like us on facebook and instagram and subscribe to us on the apple uh, podcast app at dialogica podcast cool we'll catch you next time bye